So we're going to finish up. We've been in a series through April called The Goat. Again, we're not talking about goats, animals. This stands for the greatest of all time. And so um, as I've been saying, in and of itself, when you look at a general sense of the world, not word, not specified into like either a specific area or sport, um, when you look at the greatest of all time generally, there can only be one greatest of all time. You know, you look at, when you specify it, which is what our world does a lot, you look at like, you know, they say Tom Brady is uh, the go to football. And so it's like, but, but he's not, you know, you put him on a basketball court, he's probably not the greatest of all time. You put LeBron James or Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or whatever you want to say in the basketball, you say they're the go, but they're probably not good in golf. I, I don't know, probably some of them golf, so they might be good. But, but, but you can have these different goats when you specify it in a special area. But when you look at a general sense of the world, the word, the greatest of all time, there can only be one greatest of all time. There can't be two greatest of all time. There can't be three. There's only one. And so what I've tried to do as we've walked through this series is pick three different qualities in April of God that show him to be the greatest of all time. That I believe he is the greatest of all time. Um, one, because he is God, but, but I think the qualities in and of themselves make them the great, makes him the greatest of all time. And so we looked the first week at his quality of love that, that relates to his greatest of all time. A couple weeks ago, we looked at forgiveness. And then this week, I want to look at what we kind of celebrated last week, um, this idea of sacrifice. This whole idea of sacrifice is what makes him great of all time. And so I don't know what you think about uh, when you think of this idea of sacrifice, but I was thinking a little bit about, and, and I'm, I don't get all the details right because I've not seen the movie. I've only seen clips, and I haven't read the book. But in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, there's the whole premise of how C.S. Lewis kind of created the book was kind of to mirror Christianity and the values of Christianity. And so um, I don't know the ins and outs, but I do know, and I guess I pronounced I don't know how you say it. I said Aslan. They said it was Aslan because there's an A in it. And so I'll say Aslan this time. Um, but Aslan is supposed to be like that God figure. He's the guy that kind of rules um, and, and is the good part of Narnia. Then there's the other side. You've got the, the white witch, who's, I guess, more the symbolizing of, of the devil or, or the evil of this world. And so um, then you have this little guy. I don't know if he's little, I guess. But Edmund, Edmund's one of the, one of the guys, and, and he starts to venture over into this side a little more. He starts to venture into the evil side, and, and he eats some of these candies that they call Turkish delights um, and starts really getting greedy and wants to gain all this power. And so he's starting to kind of turn his back on the good and, and Aslan and starting to side more with the White Witch. And, and, and finally, as he realizes what he's done, there's this kind of pinnacle point where it comes and somebody's got to pay for the transgressions he's caused. Somebody has to make these things right. And so if you're just looking at it, it's like, well, it makes sense if Edmund did. He's the one that's, that's got to bring this back together. And, and, but then out of kindness, the goodness, the lovingness of who Aslan is, he steps in. And I was watching this clip, and I don't get very emotional um, in, in terms, uh, in general, but even in movies. But this, this clip is very moving to me, I think, just because of the way they set it up. And um, probably if you watch the whole movie, it's, it makes it even better. But, but I'm watching the clip where he steps in to be the sacrifice. And so when you're watching this clip, you see Aslan tied up. He's got ropes around his mouth, ropes around his body, and he's laying on this stone table. 
you got the white witch kind of on top of the table saying all these things and then if you look around you got some weird looking guys that are standing around the table they kind of look like orcs from lord of the rings and stuff and they're all standing and they're chanting and she's going on and on about how um he can't defeat her and she's gonna rule everything blah 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 i don't know all the words and so she's standing there and, and you just see the picture of the sacrifice and he's just laying there he's not trying to fight it he's not trying to make his case he's just laying there and I think what, what gets me a lot of times is as the energy is kind of building and they're getting ready to sacrifice him to finally defeat God in a sense. They're going to finally defeat Aslan, powerful one. It pans over and often the bushes are kind of off in the distance. Aslan makes contact with two of the girls with his eyes and you just see in his eyes the love that he has for them. And then it's in this moment that the white witch picks up, it's a, it looks like a knife type thing, and then stabs him and he dies. And I think when we look at something like the word sacrifice, that may not be necessarily the first thing you think of, but when I think of this word sacrifice, it can't just be something that we verbally say. Actions have to back it up. Aslan wasn't just going to be somebody that says, well, I'll be the sacrifice and then just like beats up the white witch and, and it's all over. No, he, he says, I will sacrifice. I will make things right. And so in that moment, he steps in to the ring, if you want to say, lays down on the table and takes the sacrifice that he didn't deserve. He was innocent. Yet he took the place of the guilty so that the guilty could be set free. Sacrifice is about actions and words, but I think when we look at this word, we have to see what they're doing, not just what they're saying. And I think sometimes when it comes to God, and I think why we don't always have the greatest relationship with God, where we feel like, well, I know for me growing up, my grandma was one that I felt like always was on fire for Jesus. And I'm like, how is she just always excited about her relationship with Jesus? How is she always seeming to grow and reflect Jesus? And I think part of the reason we don't always feel that is because we don't always truly understand the power and abilities of Jesus, of God. We don't understand the lengths and, 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 and places that he went so that we could feel the way that we feel or be in the relationship that we're in or, or reflect him being the greatest of all time. And so I want to look at this idea that the goat sacrifices as we bring this to a close. And this is only just a small tidbit of some of the qualities of who God is, his love his forgiveness, and now his sacrifice that I hope will show you why he is the greatest of all time because of his sacrifice. And so um, I'm going to show you this passage in Luke 23, but then we're going to back up. It's almost going to be like a, a flashback as we build up to this the rest of the time. But it says here, by this time it was noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the thick veil hanging in the temple was torn apart. And Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When the captain of the Roman soldiers handling the execution saw what had happened, he praised God and said, Surely this man was innocent. And when the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw all that had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the woman who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance 
watching. And so here's the scenes, what's happening in this very moment. It's Jesus is hanging on the cross, and, and, and this is the moment that he gives his spirit up. He dies fully. And he says, Father, as it says, I entrust my spirit to you. And, and the Roman soldier that's kind of in charge of this whole execution is moved, I think, in a sense. And, and he says, it says he praised God because surely this man was innocent. So, so how do we get here? How do we get to the point where Jesus becomes a sacrifice? Well, you've got to back all the way up to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to fly through a couple different things. But, but in Genesis chapter, you've got to go almost back to Genesis chapter 1 to truly understand how we got here. So Genesis chapter 1, we see creation. We see God creating the heavens. We see him creating the earth, the animals, um, the sky, all these different things. And then he also creates male and female in his image. And from this moment, from Genesis 1, when these are created, to Genesis chapter 3, there is a perfect unity between man and God. We can't understand that fully because evil has been in our world and in our lives ever since we've been born. And so we can't understand what it's like to be in true perfection fully devoted to God, fully devoted to this relationship, but that's what this looked like. I was trying to say earlier that the closest thing I can kind of think about it, and bad stuff still happens, is like when you go on a retreat somewhere, you get away from everybody else, and it's like just you and God, and you and you and godly other people together, and it's like that's just maybe partially at a small, small level of what that would look like, but we can't truly understand that perfection. And so there's unity among Jesus and the people. Then in Genesis chapter 3, we, we get where the story starts to go a little differently than it was supposed to. God tells them as they're in this perfect unity, there's only one tree you cannot eat from. That's one rule. It's not like Jesus had this, or God had this whole set of rules where he said you can't do this, can't do that, can't do this. But he says you have one rule. One. It's like somebody telling you you got one rule. You gotta, today you got to take out the trash, or you can't go to this, this person's house. You can't go on this street, whatever it is. I don't know. But you got one rule. And he says there's one tree in the middle, knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from this tree. Any other tree you can have. Maybe there's 50 trees, 75 trees. They have all these trees to pick from, but there's one in the center. And I think what happens, though, in our lives is that the thing we cannot have, we want the most. And so they see this, and it kind of probably gets floating in their head. Oh, we're not supposed to eat that. But man, why can't we eat that? That fruit looks good. And so it's like they walk past it every day and go, well, there's got to be something, some reason I can't have this. So Eve kind of moseys on over with Adam kind of heading behind her, and they get to this tree, and we see the serpent entice Eve. This tree is good. You'll start to know good and evil. The fruit looks good. And so Eve takes a bite while Adam is standing right behind her, not leading as a husband, not helping her out, just watching this whole thing unfold, she takes a bite, he takes a bite, and from this moment, what used to be this is now this. Sin enters into the equation, and there's no longer this perfect unity. There's sin now in the middle, and the bridge that was together has now been split apart. And God says from this moment, we've got to bring this restoration back to where it was. And so from this moment on, we start to see sin separate us further and further from God. We see Cain and Abel, the first murderer, happen just a few chapters after this. We see a few chapters after that, um, this Tower of Babel that they made, because they're going to reach God. They can do it. So we're going to build a tower all the way to the sky. 
They build the Tower of Babel. You read Judges. Read through Judges. People were dying by tent poles. Stabbing tent poles through people's temples and all this different stuff. It's just sin is going everywhere. And so the solution during the Old Testament was sacrifices. You would go out. You have to find either a lamb, a sheep, a goat, a ram, whatever it was, without blemishes, without broken bones, nothing wrong with it. And you would kill it and sacrifice it to, to kind of offer this sacrifice for your sins. But God didn't want that to be the end goal. God didn't want that to be the end solution. He said, I need, in order for this to come back to the way it was in this relationship, there needs to be somebody that is going to pay the price for this separation. He had every right to nominate one of us. He had every right to even leave it how it was. I told you not to eat from the tree. And you went and did it anyways. And so in this moment, though, he'd been working through this plan, and about eight months from now, what we'll celebrate is the birth of Jesus. He comes down to this earth. He says, okay, I love you more than anything. I'm going to send down my son. So Jesus is born, and so he comes, and for 30 years he grows up, lives his life. In the last three years, 30 to 33, he does his ministry, and it's all working up to this point where we get to in Luke 23, or in any of the Gospels at the end, where he's going to be nailed to a cross for you and for me. But but I think what's very interesting, and we don't always kind of contemplate, is that through his ministry and through his life, he was perfect yet understands every area in which we struggle. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is not able to sympathize with us, and this is kind of a paraphrase, yet understands everything we go through. So even through his life, he, not, he did not sin. He was tempted. He did not sin. He understands what we go through. And so we get to this point that that we get to the Last Supper, what we looked at um, on Good Friday when we had communion here. And we looked at Last Supper, and what happens here is all these disciples gather around the table, and he sits there at the table and he says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you, the devil has already taken a hold of, sin's already clouded your vision, you're going to hand me over to get me in trouble. Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. Yet, Judas goes, gets him handed over, he gets arrested, and then he stands trial. Stands trial before Pilate, and and Pilate says, I I don't see anything wrong with him. There's nothing I can convict him on. There's nothing he's done wrong. I, I, I don't know what to do. Yet the people are persistent and say, he needs to be crucified. So they crucify him. And here's what they do. They go, and, and you can read the rest of the story, but he gets flogged a lot. I, I, I picture the Passion of the Christ movie, and he gets flogged, back split open. Sometimes they said on those whips they would put different kind of either metals or, or nails, stuff like that. And so like there would be different shards of stuff on the end of these um, whips that, that would kind of dig and tear the skin. And so he gets all torn up as he's getting this punishment. And then he's got to take this crown of thorns they put on top of him and they carry this massive cross that was super heavy and he was already torn up all the way up a hill and he's going to put this cross down and they're going to lay this cross down and they're going to put one nail in each side and they're going to cross his legs and put a nail through both feet because in this moment 
we start to see that Jesus, out of his love for you and for me, wants to be that sacrifice because there now is this separation and somebody perfect, without flaw, without blemishes, has to be the sacrifice. And Jesus was the only one that could do it. So there wasn't options to call one of us because we're not perfect. Evil has entered into our lives. So he does it himself by coming down and he gets nailed to a cross. And a lot of times they say that when he was on that cross, it's not necessarily the nails that killed him, but, but it, a lot of times it was suffocation because they couldn't breathe real well when they're hanging there on the cross and, or they would bleed internally and it would fill up their lungs and they would just suffocate. And so what they had to do, which was also super painful, is that when they were nailed up there like this, they'd kind of have to raise themselves up a little so that they could get air. And so he's hanging there. He's hanging there on the cross. Being that sacrifice, I, I, I try to imagine, I would challenge you to imagine, and just imagine me not standing here right now, not saying anything, but your Savior is nailed to a cross. He's up there on the cross, carrying that cross miles and miles to be set on a hill for doing nothing wrong so that you could be back in this relationship with Him. That we would no longer have to sacrifice these animals to atone for our sin, but there would be an ultimate atonement that would be nailed for you and for me. Out of his love, he did that. And then we're brought to this scene. That as he's hanging there, he's been hanging there for a while, he entrusts his spirit to God, and he dies. But the great thing about this is that he doesn't stay dead. Three days later, he rises, and now, as he ascends back to heaven, he says, I don't only want to make the sacrifice so that you can be back into a relationship with me. I'm going to leave you with part of me as well, and the Holy Spirit he leaves with us as he ascends back to heaven. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people that can sacrifice for us in different ways. You can have somebody sacrifice their money to help you out in a way. Somebody sacrifice their clothes to put them on your back or somebody else's back. But I don't think there's very many people that are willing to put up a sacrifice of their one and only son so that we could be set free. God didn't even care if just one person came to know him. That's the kind of love he has for you and for me. Is that if just one person would turn their back from sin, I'll die a death that is brutal because I have a love. I think that's what's so amazing about these different qualities of the goat is that it's not these separate, God is loving, God is forgiving, and God is sacrificial. It's not like it just, they're all these separate compartments. They intertwine within each other. Out of his love for you and for me, he wanted to sacrifice his son so that we could be forgiven. If I'm going to put my life, my trust, and my hope in something, it better be something great. And I think just seeing the qualities of who God is, he's love, he is forgiveness, he is sacrificial, is going to prove in a small way that he is the greatest of all time. I close with, there's a, movie out there maybe some of you have seen but there's a good movie um, called Lone Survivor out there it came out a while ago and 
Um, what basically the gist um, of the movie is, is that these six guys are sent in and they're supposed to take out this high profile guy um, from the Taliban. So they get kind of dropped into this area and then they kind of set up shop around this ridge um, that is um, kind of on the outskirts of the village that this guy's supposedly supposed to be. So you go through the movie, you're watching, it's kind of slow to begin with, but then halfway or so about through the movie, uh, there's these guys that walk up with all these sheep that have some connection to the Taliban, and they're not 100% sure um, that they do, but there's a hunch that they feel that they're probably not just coming up there to come up there. They probably walk their sheep so that they see if there's anybody trying to come in and take somebody out. So they're walking up there, and so immediately as these guys get up there, um, they tie them up. Because they're like, I, we don't want to take a risk that one of them runs down and tells something, and then we're on this full-on invasion. And so um, they're walking this path to tie these guys up, but one of the guys, a younger one of them, gets free. So he starts sprinting down the hill. And so he gets down the hill and ends up telling somebody um, what's going on, who these guys are, and all of a sudden, for the rest of this movie, you've got... A, a, a crazy number of Taliban that are fighting just these six guys. I mean, they're totally outnumbered. There's no way they're, they're all going to make it out alive. There's no way maybe any of them will make it out alive because there's just so many of them and not very many of the Americans. So it starts going from six to five to four left. And once they get to about four or three of the guys left, they're pinned kind of in this area where there's a bunch of rocks and this guy named Mike Murphy I don't know who the actor that plays him but you can look him up uh, Mike Murphy is kind of pinned in this corner he leans over to one of his pals and he says I'm, I'm going to go get us help because see they had this phone it wasn't like a cell phone but some type of military phone that they can make a call back to base to call in reinforcements and so he needed to get to a higher spot so that he could get a call out to call in to the base so they could send backup for them. And so he's pinned between these rocks and he sees up here on the edge this little ridge that he's got to climb up to get to to make this call. And he leans over to him and says, I'm going to go do it. And he says, no way. Because he knows if he gets up there, he's in open fire, he's got no cover, and he's, it, it's just a sacrifice. There's no way out. But he's persistent and he keeps saying, I'm going to do it. So finally, the couple guys, they start cover fire. And he starts making his way up the ridge and starts going up the ridge and makes his way all the way up there and kind of crawls up there so he has a little bit of cover on the edge of the ridge as there's a bunch of Taliban running up the side of the rocks to take him out. And he pulls out the phone, he makes a call, and he can't say very much, but basically says, we need backup, and kind of tells them where they're at. And then he sets the phone down, and in that moment, he knows he's got people coming up from the bottom, coming up from the left, and kind of crawls to the edge of the rock, gets up on his knees, and there's just a bunch of blasts of bullets. And later in, they do send backup, but only one of them makes it out. But I imagine this a little bit, how Jesus is. You know, we're, we're all in this, this world, and we've got sin separating us, and we've got this relationship that's now skewed. And Jesus looks over at us, and he says, I'm going to go. I'm going to go do it. And so instead of a ridge, he walks up a mountain. And he gets nailed to a cross instead of shot with a bunch of bullets so that we could now make it out alive. 
God is the greatest of all time because he did something that he couldn't, that none of us could do, and because he wanted to. I think when we begin to understand some of these qualities to their fullest extent, it's going to begin to open up our relationship with one of the greatest people that we could have. God is the greatest of all time because he's loving, because he's forgiving, and because he's sacrificial.